The following audio is from the Grove Church Marysville campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. My name is Aaron. I'm glad you're here today. It's a beautiful sunny Sunday. Uh, so thank you for being here. If I, had to, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at the Grove Church, and I get the opportunity to continue in our Happy Trails series where we're taking a portion of the Psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent, and this is in essence the Israelites, God's people, would travel to Jerusalem about three times a year for different feasts or celebrations to remember God and to celebrate God's faithfulness and to respond in, through feasts and, uh, together. So they would travel in throngs in hundreds uh, and even up to a thousand-ish people. They would travel together, and these are the psalms that they would be reciting or singing along the way. Uh, it's almost like those car ride songs that you sing often with your kids if you're on long road trips, which I don't ever sing those songs, but um, just kidding, kind of. But so this is the idea of the Psalms of Ascent, and it's applicable to us today because many of us in this room, whether you see it or not, we're on a journey to eternity. We're on a journey in this life to eternity, whether we've crossed the line of faith in this room today and we've said yes to Jesus and we're anticipating our return or coming into his kingdom, or maybe we haven't crossed the line of faith today and you're just here kind of checking things out. Uh, or you come begrudgingly, I'm glad you're here. We are all on this journey in responding to Jesus today. And so it's applicable for our lives. And so we're going to be in Psalm 130, so feel free to turn in your Bibles as uh, you pull them out. It's Psalm chapter 130. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. There should be one in the seat in front of you. If there's not, the scripture will be on the screen behind me as well, so you'll still be able to read along. As I was thinking about and praying about this, this message today, uh, I was kind of reminded of my childhood if you don't know much of my story, uh, I grew up in the church with a very strong Christian family. We, uh, I, I don't remember missing very many Sundays throughout my childhood. And I remember at a very young age, I, I, I accepted Christ, I invited him into my heart, and I wanted to live for him. And then later on in my teenage years, about 15 or 16, I, I made more of a, a very strong personal decision to follow Christ. But the foundational principles that I was taught and instilled at a young age carried over. And one of the things that I remember learning as a five, six, seven-year-old, I remember this vividly, uh, and I remember my mom and dad used to teach me, they taught me that Jesus, we accepted him, asked him into our hearts, we wanted, whenever we did something wrong or bad, which we would call sinful, we should repent, we should ask for forgiveness. And as a five, six, seven-year-old little kid, I remember some of the worst sins that I could make, some of the best, most bad choices I could make were calling my friends mean names, we're stealing Legos and putting them in my cowboy boots is what my mom tells me I did. I still do that today, so don't, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I would backtalk my mom and dad. I would lie to my mom and dad. I would take something of my sisters or I would hit my sisters or my little brother. And I just remember as a kid, those are some of the like, bad choices I would make. And there was one moment specifically with my, with my friends. We were out playing, I don't know, we were playing tag or football or some other kid game you play, Duck, Duck, Goose. And I remember getting mad because my friends were saying something mean to me or I lost the game, which I was really competitive at a young age. That's kind of been weeded out a little bit uh, in my old age. But I remember being ultra competitive and I kind of got mad and mean to one of my friends. And so I called him a jerk. I'm pretty sure it was a jerk. That was like a really bad word when I was a kid. Um, and so as soon as I caught myself saying, calling him a jerk, you know what I did? I Stopped everything, and I ran home to my house on Fox Creek Court. I still remember that street name for some reason. I ran up into my room, and I, and I knelt, knelt beside my bed. 
Now, quick side note, I don't know why I knelt beside my bed because I wasn't taught to kneel beside my bed when we prayed, but I'm pretty sure I saw it on TV somewhere, and so I just figured that was the right posture to pray to God. And so five or six or seven, I remember sitting beside my bed like this, saying, Dear Jesus, please forgive me for calling my friend a jerk. I don't want you to leave my heart. Will you please come back? In Jesus' name, amen. And I'd get up, and I'd run back out into the street, and I'd play with my friends. We'd probably call him a jerk again and have to do that whole cycle all over again. <laughs> and it's interesting to me because I wonder how many of us that that is our rhythm. When it comes to following Jesus, the question we ask in regards to the psalm today is how do we maintain a life that is forgiven? How do we live in a manner of forgiven versus a perpetual cycle of asking for forgiveness? And it's not to say that you shouldn't repent. It's not to say you shouldn't go and ask for forgiveness. But I don't think the rhythm of me, of this repetitive cycle of saying something mean to my friends, going to my bedside and praying and asking Jesus not to leave my heart is, a pro, is, is, is the full picture. And I'm thankful today as we ask this question, how do I live in a manner that is forgiven? I'm thankful the Psalms gives us that picture. And so as we look at Psalm 130, I want to share a few thoughts after reading it and praying and then bring us to a point of decision uh, today because I think it's worth doing. Let's read together Psalm chapter 130. It says, From the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I've put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than the centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than the centuries long for the dawn. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For the Lord, with the Lord, there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to be here, to gather. Lord, I pray that through our time together, Lord, that you would stir our hearts with your truth, that it would remind us today of your mercy, of your grace, and of your sacrifice. And Lord, where we try and take platform, where we try and take center stage, God, I pray you would again redirect us to see your mercy in full display. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the opportunity to wrestle through what it means to live forgiven. I pray you would help each of us to leave knowing that we can be confident and trust in you alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we've already kind of discussed, this is one of those psalms of ascent. This is a psalm or a song that God's people would sing and recite together heading to Jerusalem. And it's applicable because we are, as I said, on a journey to eternity. But there's another category this psalm falls into, and that's called the penitential psalms. And this word penitent, which is the root of the word penitential, means this. It says, feeling or showing sorrow and regret for having done wrong. Another synonym for penitential is repentant. So the idea of these psalms, the, this psalm along with a handful of others, is this picture that there's a repentance and response to one's own recognition of their own sinfulness. It's a response to God because of his goodness and his, his mercy, but it's also an awareness of our sinfulness as it is. And if you're anything like me, I have a tendency to read from a negative viewpoint. I say this pretty often. I'm my own worst critic. I read a, a psalm or a, a psalm like this, and it says, man, God, if you could keep a record of our, of our sins, who would survive? I'm like, not me. 
And so I immediately begin to feel rejected and a little bit defeated and a little bit discouraged because I'm like, God, I'm not perfect. And it's interesting to me because the penitential psalms, are, that's not their intent. The goal of these psalms is not to remind you and I how bad we are. It's to remind us how good and faithful God is. As I was studying this passage, one of the, one of the quotes about penitential psalms or, or this penitential element was said this way. It says, this penitential element in these psalms, referring to this one and several others, is intended to helping followers of Christ to see themselves as forgiven people whose only right to enter God's presence exists in the mercy of God. It's a positive viewpoint. And the difference between the two is the focus of the individual. From a negative viewpoint, I view myself as incapable and unable to approach God confidently. And the view of the psalmist is in light of God's mercy, I can enter God's presence. It's a glass half full, if you will. I guess I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. That's how it works. But here's what I know. Many of us come into the room and we feel immediately unworthy to be here. And God would tell you through Psalm 130, because of my mercy, you belong. See, it's interesting for you and I because we often forget about God's faithfulness and his mercy. If we've walked this earth for a long time, if you follow Jesus for a portion of that time, it's really easy to get caught up in your own circumstances or in our own problems, our own shortcomings, our own tendencies that we forget how great and how good our God is. And the psalm today reminds us not to forget. As we kind of structurally look at the psalm, we see it broken down in four different ways. It's an eight-verse psalm, which means every two verses is a different kind of component. We see in the first two verses that there's this lament of sin, this recognition of sinfulness. Then it progresses on in verses three and four, this confession of, out of the recognition, out of the lament, there's a confession of sin. Then we find hope in verses five and six. And in seven and eight, we find not just this assurance, but almost this rallying call to God's people to respond and come back to God because he's rich in mercy. So I want to take a few moments and break down the psalm before I lead us to a couple points of decision today. And the first, first couple things the psalmist says is this, from the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. And it bleeds into verses three and four, and I just want to kind of hit it for a moment. It says, if you kept a record of our sins, O Lord, who could ever survive? See, the psalmist is recognizing how deep the sin problem is in his life. He's recognizing that it's not just a, a surfacey level where my choices are showing how sinful I am. He's recognizing the choices are bringing an awareness to the depth of the soul issue that sin is. The way that I can describe it in an analogy form is you're not sick because you're coughing. You're coughing because you're sick. You have a fever because you're sick. There are symptoms that speak to a deeper issue within our bodies, a runny nose, Whatever the case is, you're not, these are not reasons you're sick. They show the deeper reason of sickness. And much in the same way for you and I today, for those of us who follow Jesus, our choices that we make are not, well, I'm, it's just who I am. They're showing you just how deep this sin issue goes. Your thought patterns, your lifestyle choices, the, the, the decision you made this weekend and how you spoke to your spouse or how your family falling apart because of something you're choosing to not forgive, whatever the case is, the websites you're looking at, the TV shows you're spending money on, the place you spend the weekend, the choices we make are indicative of a deeper sin 
issue. This is why Paul says in the New Testament, the things that I want to do, Lord, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, which are bad things, I do. And then he says this statement, who will save me from the wretch that I am? And he's like, thanks be to God in Christ, my Savior. Paul is alluding, just like the psalmist is alluding to you and I today, we have got to come to a greater understanding of our need for a Savior because we're broken. Not because of the choices you're making, not because of your lifestyle preferences, but because we're sinful and we need a Savior who meets us on a soul level, not a behavior level. The psalmist is saying, I'm recognizing my sinfulness, and out of that recognition, I'm crying out to you for help. And then he says the statement in verse 3 and 4, he says, Lord, if you kept a record, who could survive? First off, I read that from my negative viewpoint. I'm like, God, I can't survive. The psalmist doesn't stop there. He doesn't want the focus to be on your brokenness. He wants the focus to be on the mercy of God. And he says this. He says, but you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. The mercy of God is so extravagant. It's so incredible that in the midst of our deep brokenness, our deepest need, the reason why we run to that thing for comfort is because there's a deeper longing to be comforted by our Savior and our Heavenly Father. He says, but you, O Lord, offer forgiveness. If you kept a record of wrongs, and it's the best part about that phrase is if. Because in Christ, he doesn't. In Psalm 103, it says that he takes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He no longer sees us as sinful because he sees us through the sacrifice of Jesus and he invites us to be a part of this conversation. He invites us to be in a family with him. It's interesting because I have a son who's two years old. I have a daughter who's turned six on Tuesday. She's now in first grade for the first time because this is the first official Sunday she could be upstairs. It's weird to think that I have a daughter in our Grove Kids upstairs area. My son is two years old. They both love the trampoline. Anybody have a trampoline? I'm not talking the trampoline park. I'm talking like an actual trampoline. With the, we have the net enclosure. I didn't have a net enclosure when I was a kid. I think I probably would have less injuries as my, in my childhood from that trampoline if I had a net. Anyways, there's a net around our trampoline, and my kids know that when they jump, they should stay inside the trampoline, zip up the zipper so that way they don't fall out. My son has gotten this really bright idea lately because he's a climber to climb. He climbs our piano. He climbs a little picnic table, a toy picnic table. I mean, anything he can find the table. I saw him climbing on the table the other day, washing one of the windows. I'm like, well, that's good that you're washing windows, but get off the table. But he likes to climb on the trampoline on the outside of the net. He does this. Some of you are getting nervous already because I'm like creeping on the edge. I actually pulled the podium back on purpose for this moment. But he likes to climb on the side of the net. And you know what happens sometimes? He falls down. Luckily, he's got some hard grass, dirt, and ground to fall on so it doesn't hurt as bad. It's better than concrete, I guess. But he falls down. And you know what happens when he falls down? He cries out, Dad! It's more like, Daddy! I fell down, Daddy! And from the kitchen, that's almost like what my son sounds like, right, babe? Yeah, cool. I'll see him from a kitchen window, and the first thing I'll do is I'll run out to him because my son is hurt. If my daughter fell off the trampoline, which she fell off the other day because she was trying to help getting off the trampoline, my first instinct is to run out and pick up my kids and make sure they're okay. Why? Because I hope to be a good dad. I'm not perfect. But that's my natural response is to go check in on my kids. 
If he starts falling and I'm seeing him fall, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do everything in my power to get out there to catch him before he hits the ground. You know what rarely happens anymore because I'm not nearly as fast as I used to be? Is I rarely catch him when I see him falling. I hope to get back to that youthful spryness, but I'm 35, so probably not. I'm kidding. But here's the crazy thing. If my heart is to run to my kids to save them, and I'm broken and need a savior, how much more does God want to go to us and save us? But why is our natural response in the midst of our sinfulness not to cry out to God, but actually to, to, to tell God to go away? It's as if my son's on the ground hurting and crying out for me, and then I come over, he's like, no, dad, leave me alone. No, go away. But that's not our natural response, because we're broken. See, it's interesting, because when the psalmist says, if you kept a record of our sins... And I think some of us in the room today, you're like, you should see my list. And some of you don't think God wants to run to you to pick you up because you've fallen off that trampoline. Some of you think that God looks at you like, serves you right. You made a bad choice, moron. That's the perspective we have of God sometimes. And the psalmist reminds us his mercy is to offer forgiveness not to extend a judgment. See, right where you're at, some of you just need to hear that he takes your sins as far as he is from the West. He sees you through his son's sacrifice, righteous, redeemed, invited, belonging to the family of God. Not because of what you've done or what you're doing or what you will do, but because of what Christ has finished on the cross through his resurrection He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And you need to hear today that there's a God who loves you like crazy and is standing over you as you're on the ground by that trampoline, inviting you to belong to his family, wanting to pick you up and show you how deep his love and mercy is for you. And you may need to make a decision today. You may, you may be here today and you have never said yes to Jesus. You've never prayed a prayer. You never raised a hand. And right now, I'm going to tell you, there's going to be a moment later on in just a few moments where I'm going to invite you to make that decision. And right now, your heart is starting to race. Your palms are getting a little bit sweaty. You're starting to think of Eminem's famous song that he's saying. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Spaghetti, whatever. But you're getting a little anxious. And I would simply say this. The Holy Spirit wants to reveal to you and show you himself his goodness, his love, and his mercy today. And in a few moments, you're going to have a chance to respond to that. So I hope that you'll have the courage to do so. For some of us in the room, we've been in church a long time. We've done this thing many times. We've heard prayers. We've heard salvation calls. We, we know the language better than, than some of the pastors know the language. But we still view God as an angry God who is mad at our choices and thinks you should know better. And I'm here to tell you that the God that I see in Scripture reminds you today he's rich in mercy. There's consequences to choices. I'm not minimizing that. But just like the young Gideon who falls off the trampoline after I tell him not to climb on the outside of the trampoline, he's doing what he shouldn't be doing. My natural response when he falls to get hurt is to run to him and to pick him up. And I believe God would say the same thing to you today. In the midst of your sin, even though you're following Jesus, even though you're following Jesus he wants to run to you as well. Will you just let him? Psalmist reminds us of God's mercy. And there's a weight because the way we live in response to this truth today matters. 
The psalmist continues on and says, I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. When we remember who God is and what God does for us, we then live in allegiance to God. We can count on him and that he will follow through. Because the Bible says when we are faithless, he is faithful. We can count on him because of who he is, not because of what we deserve. When he says that I put my hope in his word, this word is referring to a salvation act that sustains faith. You and I today have the salvation act in Jesus that is the source of our faith today. The psalmist is putting his hope in God, who is trustworthy, who is faithful, who has shown himself faithful. And it says, like centuries longing for the dawn, I long for God. A little bit of context here. In ancient times, they didn't have electricity. No brainer, right? Oh, I didn't know that. Now you know. So in the middle of the night, as these watchmen were on the walls, their, jo- their job was to protect and be as, pro- as, as aware as possible so that nobody could invade and take over their, their city, their, their people. There were barriers. And in the middle of the night, there's not much you could see. In the middle of the night, there's not a lot. There's shifting shadows. What did I just see? Something happened. They longed for the dawn to start creeping in so it would start illuminating light across the terrain so they could see what has come in, who has come. Has there been any other opposing armies or people groups that are looking to try and take over my, my city? And so when the dawn creeped in, it provided light. It began bringing awareness to what's going on in front of them. They longed for the light. And much like these centuries were longing for the light of day, the the Israelite people were longing for the light of Christ. They were awaiting the coming Messiah. So as they're rallying together to go to Jerusalem, they're singing these songs, I long for the dawn like the centuries. They were anticipating mentally the coming Messiah. We now know that Messiah to be Jesus Christ because we live in a New Testament era. So we see this man, Jesus, who says in John 8, 12, which is such a powerful statement, he says, I am the light of the world. These are the words of Jesus. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. You and I no longer live in darkness. As dark as the world around us may seem to be getting, as more far away from God as it seems to be getting, we have the light of the world. We don't have to walk in darkness. We can cling tightly to truth and hope and love and mercy because God is faithful. Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. What the centuries were waiting for, what the Israelites were waiting for, I have arrived. I have not only just arrived, I'm going to lay my life down for you so you can live in life and live in the light that leads to life. So now we get to anticipate sitting with Jesus in eternity. That's the hope we get to cling to. He continues on and challenges all the people he's walking with. This reflection of God's goodness, this introspection of his heart and his condition of his soul, he then has a moment where he, he, he says to all of Israel, all the people walking with him, he says, Israel, return to the Lord. He says, hope in the Lord. For the Lord there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem Israel from every 
kind of sin. It's this call to you and I today to remember that our hope can only be found in Jesus. That our hope can only be found in the one who saves our souls. That our behaviors, that our actions, that our choices cannot save us. But our surrender to the one who's already done the work is what saves us. It's this call and a reminder for you and I today. Whether we've crossed this line of faith many, many years ago, many days ago, many minutes ago, many hours ago, whatever it may be, that our hope is only in the Lord. That in the condition of our soul, which is broken, which is sinful, and it needs a Savior beyond what you or I can do on our own, to remember, God, you are everything. I love the way one commentary, one scholar put it. It's to renew one's submission to the Lord. Following Christ is not an act of emotion as much as an act of submission. We are denying ourselves, our rights, our attitudes, our perspectives, and trusting in Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So here's my question to you today. Do you have hope? And if you're in this room and you've said yes to Jesus and you would say, yes, I have hope, my next question is, is it contagious and compelling? Because the psalmist shows us the hope he has draws him to invite everyone else into the conversation. Is the hope you have contagious or compelling? Or is it struggling? Are you half empty and you're struggling to fill up? and you feel hopeless, is it contagious and compelling? Because I would say the same thing to you that the psalmist said. Renew your submission to the Lord today. Surrender to him once more. Give him control of every thought, every choice, every moment. Say, God, help me today. Help me to know whether I should go eat at fast food or go home and make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because it's cheaper and it's probably stewarding money better. Help me to know whether I should reach out and talk to my neighbors. Help me to know if I should pray for someone. Invite God to help you. Invite the Holy Spirit to help you. Live surrendered to the Lord today. Maybe you're in this room today and you would say you want hope and you've never crossed the line of faith. You have never publicly made a decision to say, Jesus, I want you as my Lord and Savior. And maybe you're here today, and as I've already alluded, you're the kid like my son on the trampoline who's fallen on the ground, and you're resisting God and saying, God, don't. I'm not interested. I'll figure it out on my own. And you've tried for too long to be your own Savior. Maybe your list of sins is greater than the list that Santa checks, every, checks twice about Christmas presents. But I would simply say to you today, there's hope in Jesus. And maybe today you need to make a choice to follow Jesus. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And in a few seconds, I'm going to count to three, and I'm just going to ask you right where you're at to raise your hand. Because the greatest decision you can ever make is to follow Jesus. At 16 years old, 15, 16, driving across the van, when that choice became my own, my life was forever changed. That's the one moment I refer back to in every one of my stories, and most students here know it. Because I say it all the time. It's the greatest decision you can ever make. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. So I want to give you a chance today to accept Christ. And on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand right where you're at. 
If you need Jesus today, one, I want you to raise your hand, and two, three, right where you're at, put your hand in the air. Thank you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Anyone else want to join those eight? The nine, thank you, in the balcony. Ten, thank you. The Bible says when one person says yes to Christ, all of heaven rejoices, and we just had 10 people join us today. Come on. That's amazing. Here's what I want to say to you if you're one of the 10. Your journey's just beginning. This isn't the end. And on that Connect card, there's a box you can check that says, I have accept Christ for the first time today. Will you fill out that card and check it? Because we want to come alongside you and walk this journey with you because we're all on this journey to eternity together. Here's the next thing I want to do. I just want us to pray a corporate prayer today. If, if you've been in church a long time, you know what I mean by this. If this is your first time in church, I'm just simply going to ask if you said yes to Jesus and if you, whether today or before today, would you just repeat after me all together at the same time? Say, Jesus, thank you for your love, for your grace, and your mercy. I give you my life. I want your best. I want your dreams and your purposes. Take over and have control. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we celebrate one more time, 10 people who said yes to Jesus? The greatest joy of any pastor, any, any preacher who gets up here is to be able to, to see people respond to Jesus. So thank you for that today. Uh, here's my challenge to you. What's your hope saying? Is it compelling and is it contagious? Because it's meant to be. I want to pray for you one more time. So God, thank you again for your word. Lord, thank you for the 10 that said yes, that have joined our church family. God, what an incredible, incredible opportunity to be here today. I pray that you would draw us back to reminding and remembering you. God, where we feel insecure and insignificant because of sin, Lord, would you cause us to call out to you? I pray against the resisting nature in each of us, where we try to figure it out on our own, but Lord, we want to trust you. And so Lord, today we ask that you would be the, the source of our hope. We choose to renew our submission to you, Lord, as the author and perfecter of our faith, and we give you platform. Lead us and guide us in every step of the way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Marysville Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.